and welcome everyone to um, our webinar on the promise and peril of generative AI. Uh, my name is Chris Hart. I'm a partner at uh, Foley HOAG um, and also a member of the BBA's Privacy and Digital Rights and Cybersecurity Steering Committee. Um, and I, uh, we have a great panel today with John, Steve, and Kate. I'll have each of them introduce themselves uh, one by one according to my, who's on my Zoom screen first. Uh, John, go ahead. Uh, thanks so much, Chris. My name is John Weaver. I'm a director with McLean Middleton and the chair of our artificial intelligence practice group. I'm also the author of Robots Are People Too, uh, which looks at changes necessary in the law uh, following the introduction of AI. I'm also a contributing writer to Slate Magazine uh, on those issues and an editor of the uh, Journal of Robotics, Artificial Intelligence and Law. Thanks, John. Steve? Hello, everyone. My name is Steve Wu. I'm a shareholder at Silicon Valley Law Group in San Jose, California. My practice includes transactions, compliance, litigation, incident response, and information governance in connection with information technology companies. And I help a lot of artificial intelligence and robotics companies and automated driving companies. Um, I am chair of the American Bar and founder and chair of the American Bar Association Artificial Intelligence and Robotics National Institute, which will be in Santa Clara, California on October 9th and 10th. I, I recommend that to you. And uh, also should say I'm a former member of the Boston Bar Association. Excellent. Once a member, always a member, Steve. <laughs> um, although that might not be technically accurate. Thank you. Uh, Kate? Hey, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kate Crawford. I am the director of uh, the Technology for Liberty program at the ACLU of Massachusetts, and um, I mostly work on legislative policy um, and lobbying at the state level. In recent years, we've been working on a campaign to regulate government use of facial recognition technology, so um, we're also supporting legislation that would um, create a commission to study the use of artificial intelligence in Massachusetts state government. Um, excited to be here. Thanks. Thank you, Kate. Thanks, thanks uh, to the three of you for being here. Um, and just a note to uh, our attendees: um, you'll see at, at the bottom of the Zoom screen, uh, or somewhere in your Zoom screen, there's a Q and A function. Um, as you have questions, uh, when you have questions, uh, don't hold back. Feel free and ask them. That doesn't mean they're going to get answered uh, right away or ever. But what I will do uh, as moderator is try to keep. Uh, an eye on questions, um, and uh, if it looks like there's a good opportunity to ask it during the during the course of the webinar, I'll ask it. But uh, otherwise, we'll see if we can reserve some time at the end uh, in the event uh, folks were holding back or, or had other thoughts. So, um, so with that, we have a lot to talk about, and let's go right into it. Steve, um, why don't you give us all, uh, if you could, an explanation of what we're talking about when we're talking about generative AI? Generative AI is a big leap forward in artificial intelligence technology, but this program is timely because I believe that artificial intelligence will change the world more than anything in human history. This was a quote from Kai-Fu Lee, who talked to Scott Pelley around the time of his 2018 book, AI Superpowers, and uh, it is just reinforced over time how true his words are becoming. Uh, and we've seen that with, with generative artificial intelligence, but to step back a little bit, um, let's start with some of the basics. What is artificial intelligence in the first place? I mean, we all have this notion of it, seeing examples of it, automated driving, making uh, research more uh, efficient, um, having uh, networks 
look for your credit card transactions to ferret out examples of, hey, maybe this transaction is fraudulent or something like that. So we all have some idea of what artificial intelligence is, um, but uh, to be a little bit more precise about it, um, artificial intelligence is a system that can sense, reason, act, and adapt. So think about an autonomous vehicle. It has sensors that bring in data, cameras, LIDAR to see what's going on in the road. It can reason. It can say, okay, where am I relative to the road? Where, where am I going? And so create a path and then act using the brake throttle and uh, accelerator and then adapt change. If, if ch circumstances change, uh, the route might have to change. That's an example of artificial intelligence. And people also talk about systems that can do things that are normally attributed to humans. I'm being somewhat imprecise, but you get the idea. I think you all have an intuitive notion of artificial intelligence. There's an important distinction about artificial intelligence, which is that um, back in the day, there was this uh, efforts on, on one side to create rules-based systems. They call it good, good old-fashioned artificial intelligence, where you basically have a lot of statements like, if then, if this is true, then say that. Um, where systems, uh, for example, they're, they're called expert systems, um, where you would try to get some guidance and you would put in a query and based on the information that you put in and the human coded rules that are put in, it would come up with an answer. But of course, that's very, very hard to do because humans can't anticipate all of the types of things that might come up. So we had a new, newer technology later on called machine learning. And machine learning systems are those whose performance improve as they're exposed to more data over time. So some of these uh, machine learning systems are exposed to huge amounts of data. Data is the new oil, people say. And uh, so right now there's this uh, idea of collecting more data. The big tech companies are collecting more data so they can train their machine learning systems. And there's a subset of that called deep learning, which is uh, a subset in which multi-layered neural networks learn from vast amounts of data. That's a, that's a short statement of that. So deep learning is a type of machine learning. So then we get to generative artificial intelligence, which, as I said, is a, is a large leap forward. It is a form of artificial intelligence. It is a form of machine learning and deep learning that generates new and original data or other content using algorithms and machine learning models trained on large data sets of examples. So that's, that's how we define generative artificial intelligence. But I'll give you some examples of generative artificial intelligence just so you can understand a little bit better. There, and, and to understand some of the terms, I think it's really important to understand because there are a lot of terms thrown around these days about generative AI. So there's something called large language models, which are trained deep learning models that understand and generate text in a human-like fashion. Um, it, so it transforms input from a prompt into a type of output. So many of you have probably used ChatGPT. Um, it's, it's a large language model. You can put in a prompt and it, it comes out with text. And I'll talk about that a little bit more but it predicts each next word, sort of like autocorrect. When, you, when you're typing in some of these systems, it, it suggests a word, um, but this is an attempt um, to predict the next word and, and generate a series of words that become sentences and things like that. But it's, there's also an attempt at understanding the context of each word. There's also something called generative pre-trained transformers. So um, this is a type of LLM that generates human-like content. Um, the, AI organization OpenAI is the best example. It had uh, we had it came out with GPT one in 2018, and it had 117 million parameters. And these are you know this is roughly the size of the the the, the system. You can think about that. Um, GPT two in 2019 had 1.5 billion parameters. GPT three had in 2020 had 175 billion parameters. 
There's GPT 3.5 in 2022, and ChatGPT is based on that. Had 175 billion, and ChatGPT 4 or GPT 4 in March of this year came out. Um, we don't know how many parameters it has. ChatGPT was this big leap forward. It got all this press in November 2022. It's based on GPT 3.5. And the thing about this is it puts in a chat interface, allowing humans to type in a prompt on a website and receive response on, on the website. Um, it's a form. Uh, there's also something called ChatGPT chat Plus. If you, if you want to pay for it, it's based on GPT 4. And it's when I say chat is different from just the regular usage. You know, those other usages would be something like an application programming interface, server to server uh, interaction, um, requests and response. So, what are some applications of generative AI? Well, we have voice generator, we have text to synthesize speech system, examples Microsoft Val E, V A L L E, Google's DeepMind WaveNet and Lovo.ai. Those are examples of voice generators. So you put in a prompt and then a, a human-like voice comes out on the other end. Um, we have image generators, uh, text-to-image. Uh, examples are Wall-E, which is uh, also OpenAI. Stable Diffusion by Stability AI Limited. MidJourney, Inc. has a system. And Google Brain Im Imagine, I guess is how you pronounce it. And then there are video generation systems where you put in a te text prompt and a video comes out. And this is a little bit newer, but we have Stable Diffusion Videos, DeepMind AI, Google, and Lumen5. So um, with that, I, I just wanted to pick, kind of give you some ideas of, of what ChatGBT can do, just kind of as an example of, of, of how this works. Like I put in a prompt with ChatGPT, like which is the better team, the, the 70s Steelers or the 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 1980s 49ers and it, it came out with an answer that was pretty good or could the south have won the civil war it, it came out with a, a little essay on that like a blog size essay i also did ask um chat gpt to create us a, a, a sonnet about the boston bar association and it came out with something you know lauding the the the, the lawyers who are in the bar association and then chris made a point that was interesting like well that this could be any bar association about heroic lawyers and so I put in, I, I asked it, I just put in a second prompt saying like, add in um, discussions of Paul Revere and the Red Sox. So in the next sonic com coming out, it actually in included the, the heroicness of the, the heroism of the, of the Boston Red Sox and, and Paul Revere. So it, it can adapt, like based on a second prompt, it can, it can uh, make a better out, output. Um, but the, I guess the best example that I'll give you is I, I asked ChatGPT to create a, a Star Trek um, script based on uh, Shaggy Do, uh, Shag, Scooby Doo, and Shaggy saving the day from the Gorn, which Gorn is like this monster that that terrorizes the the way team, and so it it came up with the script, like this entire script with dialogue and everything like that. I was very impressed. But the thing that impressed me the most is that Shaggy and Scooby Doo saved the day not because they attacked the Gorn, because they were scrambling to get away from the monster. They were running up a hill and they knocked loose a rock that that hit the Gorn and knocked it out. So and the, that, like to capture that nuance, it, it's just amazing that it, it knew kind of how, how Shay and Scooby-Doo operate. So with that, um, John, do you want to show a little example of uh, ChatGPT? Yeah, sure. Uh... <laughs> you're gonna, I think you're going to share your screen. Yeah. Yes. Um, hold on. If anybody has, and I, I can get started, but if anybody who wants to type, if anybody wants to type something into the Q and A uh, for well, some, we, we had somebody ask if you could read the sonnet to us, but maybe maybe we're going to get an example 
um, when you pull it up. But, but before you do that, um, I, I do want to, um, uh, and while, while John is pulling up the screen, um, I, I, the one of the things that um, that I found fascinating about working with ChatGPT when it was, you know, when it blew up uh, the um, uh, all of uh, all of culture and 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 even the economy, as you were describing all these different um, organizations, um, it is how disappointed I was actually with um, uh, with, with some of the outputs. So, for example, uh, I had I had a, a lawyer call me. I won't say who who said, "Oh, this seems like a really great." Uh, function for uh, legal research, um, and uh, and I tried to type in some things about the GDPR, and uh, it was not. And then I asked it to give me color commentary about David Ortiz's last plate appearance because I was there, uh, and it was wrong every single time, even if I, after I corrected it. So well, it's like, out of date, you know. Yeah. For one thing. <laughs> but the you know the sonnet, the sonnet is is interesting because that's you know that's not a fact. It's not. Right. A, or set of facts. It's it's simply you know it, it's almost exactly what a large language model appears designed to do, which is to just predict what the next set uh, set of words ought to be. Um, so Chris, and, yeah, Chris, I have it on my screen in case oh, you want me to read it. Yeah, you want me to read yeah, it? Go right ahead. Okay, in Boston Spirit, where history's tales unfold, like Paul Revere's ride, resounding and grand, the Boston Bar Association, steadfast and bold, carries the torch of justice across the land. As Revere's call alerted freedom's advance, this noble association calls for rights, championing fairness with each legal stance, their impact echoing through the darkest nights. And like the socks that grace Fenway's green fields, their teamwork and passion, an unwavering sight, they strive for victory, refusing to yield with justice as their banner shining so bright. Oh, Boston Bar Association, pride of the law, your legacy endures forever in awe. To put that in, frame it somewhere in the uh, <laughs> Beacon Street. All right, so it looks like we've got your uh, your screen shared here, John. All right, so any any suggestions as to what we should ask from ChatGPT? Uh, if anybody has something they want to add to the Q and A for us to ask, we can do that. I also have Dolly up so we can get a, an image out. Actually, let's see. Uh, hold on, I can't see my screen. All right, here we go. Uh, let's do um, Boston Bar Association building with clowns in front of it. Oh, this is going to be disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> in the style, uh, in the style of Monet. That'll take a minute or two. Uh, you can see they they will give other. Uh, other suggestions yeah let's see what we've got uh so some of these uh, a little bit more accurate than others uh, but you can sort of see what they're going after uh and this will respond to uh any any prompt uh there are some guardrails in place regarding actual people um, there might be some uh, some limitations on what you can add in, uh, but let's uh, let's try something here. How about a letter to uh, the president of uh, Kellogg's uh, about uh, a favorite cereal? While it's doing that, the next one, and maybe we can we can stop with this next one. It's 
ask ChatGPT what its own vulnerabilities and strategic weaknesses are. <laughs> there you go. Just starts producing it right away. Now there's a, a word limit on chat GPT of 25,000. So if you're looking to for it to write the great American novel, you're only going to get the mediocre American novella. Um, but the, you know, uh, other than that, there are, uh, there's quite a bit that it can do as Steve was describing. And it has, seems to have a lot of knowledge of culture. I mean, that was the thing that kind of amazed me. And Chris, to your point, ChatGPT, that's training data ends, what, 2020, 2021. Um, but Google's BARD, I think, is up to date. Uh, and so if, I, I don't have that up here now. Um, I didn't think there was too much need to do. Well, David Ortiz's last play appearance was 2016, as I recall. So. Oh, oh, is it even more out of date than that? Okay. <laughs> yes, um, perfect. You know, uh, another another example that might be helpful is... I, I wondered whether it could do legal drafting. So I asked it to ChatGPT, I asked ChatGPT to write, uh, and I thought this was gonna be easier, but um, to write a, um, a section of a summary judgment motion, you know, memorandum in support of uh, uh, summary judgment with the standard for summary judgment in the Ninth Circuit. And basically what it came up with was, was a college essay about what <laughs> summary judgment's all about, citing the Supreme Court cases. Like it didn't write in a legally appropriate way. Well, um, and, well, and and I've heard of I haven't done this myself, but I I was talking with somebody who on a whim said, "Hey, prepare a um a brief that could be filed in court in support of any list whatever the issue was." And ChatGPT produced a brief, um, but the cases it's and it, it read fine, and the legal the reasoning was you know maybe not stellar, but it made sense. But the cases that it cited to were largely fictional, yes, uh, which is a problem. Right. Well, yeah, they call them hallucinations, just so everybody knows. And I think that's a great segue. Steve, that's a, that a really terrific overview um, of, uh, I really appreciated the, the taxonomy of AI, machine learning, deep learning, and then talking about the different kinds of generative AI tools that are out there. Um, that's very, very useful um, because I think it can be a little bewildering and even uh, opaque um, if, if you're not immersed in it. Um, but But this question of you know, beyond the the fun sonnet and the Monet, um, the, the the actual what we'll call practical functionality raises a number of questions. And I, I wonder, John and, and Kate, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the existing regulatory framework um, around uh, the uses of generative AI tools. Sure, uh, and Kate, I'll, I'll start off and kick to you. Um, and before the webinar started, we were talking a little bit about this and. Um, Kate commented accurately that a, a number of people say, well, there's there really, we need to come up with uh, technology specific regulation or laws that address this. Um, but as she pointed out, uh, there are laws that exist that address this. We don't really need to rely on something that's made new out of whole cloth. Uh, you know, the existing consumer protection laws apply, could be applied by the relevant regulatory agencies to this. In particular, I'm thinking about the FTC and their Office of Technology Research and Investigation, as well as state consumer protection laws like 93A, uh, which are designed to prevent businesses from using unfair, deceptive, or fraudulent practices. Um, and with regard to AI, the way that really comes down is transparency and preventing bias. Uh, and the in terms of transparency, uh, and there, you see some analogs of this in um, the chat 
bought law that California passed a few years ago, uh, where consumers need to be told upfront, hey, what you're interacting with or, or what you're using is an AI product, uh, with the intention being that it will be harder to mislead consumers, uh, it will be uh, harder to, to uh, misrepresent what consumers are interacting with, you know, so that consumers don't think they're interacting with a real person, or a, a if it's a a deep fake, for example, that there's no confusion that they're interacting with the real person. Um, and then with regard to bias, uh, and uh, there are there are laws that have been tossed around state legislatures as well as Congress for a few years now called uh, Algorithmic Accountability Acts. But if uh, consumer protection agencies and laws can be leveraged for the same result, and basically that. Uh, the algorithms are vetted for bias to make sure that they're uh, whatever output that they're coming out with is not misogynistic, is not racist, is not homophobic, uh, and is uh, some of that is done by looking at what the results are. Some of that's looking at what the training data going into it is. Um, and so the you know to the extent that generative AI will produce um, uh, will produce biased content or biased data uh, that could harm people, um, FT the FTC has the tools at its disposal to pursue the developers of th those technologies uh, and stop them if they, they choose to use that. I mean, so far, uh, they've been largely silent. I, I think that most government agencies and regulators are, and this is cultural, somewhat uh, this is a, a condition somewhat culturally in the United States, but uh, they don't want to pursue technology while it is still in the process of being developed. Um, and so although they have the tools at their disposal, I think there's a certain wait and see stance that a lot of them take appropriately or not. Um, in contrast, the EU, and I'm, I'm just going to say, um, touch on the EU briefly, and then Kate, I'll, I'll kick you for um, privacy and surveillance questions, which are really apt here. In contrast, uh, the EU does have a pending AI Act. A lot of what it's dealing with are uh, the, the same issues, transparency, um, prevention of bias. Um, they, the Act would implement a basically a tiered system of regulatory obligations uh, with some AI functions banned entirely and then others uh, having different regulatory requirements of them, including um, notification to individuals as they're using them. Um, but really, the 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 major in terms of the difference between the U.S. and the EU, they're both looking at transparency. They're both looking at bias. The EU has just been more active in coming out with AI specific laws, whereas the, the U.S. have laws on the books, but nobody seems overly interested in using those right now. Um, and then, Kate, I'll, I'll pass it off to you for uh, privacy and surveillance issues. Thanks. Yeah, I just want to make a couple comments about what you said. One is that, um, you know, one of the problems, no question, I agree that when people say things like there are no laws governing, you know, generative artificial intelligence or, you know, the products that companies like Google and Microsoft are releasing, it's not correct. Um, at the same time, we are, uh, there are huge areas where the law is silent or where um, it we aren't necessarily going to see the best outcomes if we rely on uh, regulators who, by the way, don't have enough money and <laughs> and change um, 
you know, their ideological views, depending on who's the president, essentially, um, and the courts, which, as we all know, you know, the Supreme Court is not exactly um, uh, an institution that, you know, people who care about civil rights and civil liberties in particular can rely on uh, these days. So those are the kinds of large asterisks that I would uh, append to the statement that they're, you know, the, the existing regulatory scheme in the United States with respect to unfair and deceptive practices is, you know, um, a robust uh, system in terms of how, you know, regulators are going to be able to approach things like open AI, you know, LLMs, gener generative artificial intelligence. And I think those are pretty big asterisks um, because we can see that, you know, even in in uh, today's climate where we have regulators who are pretty aggressive, Lena Khan, for example, is a very um, aggressive regulator. Um, she's not going to be there forever. A, you know, if if Donald Trump or Ronald DeSantis become the president, you know, the FTC is going to look really different. And then B, um, her aggressive. Uh, approach to applying existing law to new technology has not necessarily been well received by the courts. And just, you know, just recently there was a, so the, the FTC sued a, a location data company, a location data broker named Cochava, you know, one of these companies that sells cell phone location data. And um, she alleged that the sale of of people's sensitive cell phone location information is an unfair business practice just on its face. That was a pretty uh, radical argument that a lot of people were unsure of how the courts would receive. And an Idaho federal court just a couple of weeks ago granted Cochava's motion to dismiss and, and you know, threw that lawsuit out of court. So, so while I agree that, you know, existing laws provide us with some means of approaching these they're by no means, you know, the 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 end of the story. Um, and so I'll just say a couple of things about what we at the ACLU think ought to be done in terms of privacy. Um, the first thing is pretty obvious. We don't have a, a federal privacy law in the way that you know Europe has a, a federal privacy law dealing with um, with modern technology and uh, particularly the the data-based you know surveillance economy that the the modern internet um, functions off of so one of the one of the ways that something like the American data privacy and protection act which we support a lot of the ACLU has some criticisms of, of sections of that legislation but one of the things that that we like in there is that it uses a, a data minimization model um, saying, you know, effectively companies should not be collecting or storing or processing information that they don't actually need to fulfill the core elements of their business um, to provide consumers with, you know, the, the products that they're seeking using, using those technologies. And that's a pretty fundamental issue for generative artificial intelligence, because one of the key privacy problems with this technology is that, um, it succeeds by sucking up as much information as humanly possible, uh, which is not necessarily great for ordinary people um, because we don't have any control over whether a company like OpenAI or anyone else, Meta, you know, Amazon, um, Chinese artificial intelligence companies are using our information to train their models. 
Um, we've already seen that in some instances, this has led to pretty serious privacy harms. There's uh, an example that the Electronic Privacy Information Center Epic cites in a report that they actually just published yesterday that's quite good that I highly recommend um, about generative AI and regulatory approaches where, where apparently um, some sensitive medical images from people's um, personal uh, medical files were included in a, an image training data set that people are using to develop um, image generators. So, you know, that's a pretty devastating example of how, you know, the either the lack of um, existing privacy law or the inability of regulators to properly enforce those laws is leading to some pretty serious privacy harm. So, you know, I think from a, a legislative standpoint, dates uh, need to step up to the plate. We here in Massachusetts are supporting legislation called the Massachusetts Data Privacy and uh, Protection Act, which has a lot of uh, similar elements that the ADPPA has, um, goes a little bit farther in some situations, in, including, for example, by strengthening the private right of action, which I, I think is really key because in an environment where federal regulators are outmatched financially um, by these companies, and you know, really punching above their weight um, in terms of what they're, you know, they're able to to do on behalf of consumers, just given the the sheer quantity of violations of unfair and deceptive practices that are out there, and the number of regulators who can respond to those um, those violations on behalf of consumers, um, it's really important that that our privacy laws, in particular include robust private rights of action so that individuals can enforce their rights. They don't have to wait around for the government um, to do that for them. Um, and, you know, I mentioned before, there's that problem of the will to do it, right? Lena Khan might want to do it, but it's it's totally possible that in a few years, the FTC will not want to enforce um, consumers' rights and will have an interest in doing so. Um, and, you know, even in a situation where we have a really aggressive regulator like Lena Khan in office, um, Court's not may not find her arguments persuasive, and um, she's you know working in an organization that frankly does not have enough money, um, and you know and Congress needs to invest a lot more in the regulatory bodies that we have to meet the challenge um, that we're dealing with. So I'll just leave it at that. You know, I guess the, the final thing I'll say about the privacy and surveillance issues is that people are there's a considerable amount of conversation about data privacy legislation both in Congress and in the states. Um, and that is a key part of how we need to respond as a civil society to the challenge of generative AI. It's also true, though, that there are kind of more traditional law enforcement concerns here. So, you know, for example, it's going to be only a matter of time. They may have already realized this until police and prosecutors realize that they can, you know, send legal demands to open AI to access information about how people are using the technology. And I think, you know, we're in this kind of weird moment where, it's so new and it seems so different that people are treating it like the early internet and it's not, it's not the early internet. Um, it's, you know, the police are fully aware of how they can access this information. You know, open AI is not gonna be fighting those legal demands. Um, so that's the other concern is that, you know, there may be some sort of sophisticated surveillance uh, going on. And, and so people should be aware of how they communicate with this thing because um, open AI does not understand, chat GPT does not understand anything. Um, and you know, it is not going to, uh, the technology that is, you know, it's basically a bullshit generator of, as many people have said. Um, and, you know, open AI is not going to risk its reputation with the government by, you know, aggressively fighting uh, legal demands for, for access to user, to user input, inputs and prompts. So 
folks should be aware of that. Okay, there's there's a there that's that was terrific, and and I want to um, uh, repeat one thing that you said a little bit differently, and then ask a follow up question. Um, and this is for for you or John or or any or Steve, um, uh, and and it follows the thread of a couple of questions in the in the Q and A. So one is that um, the 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 comment that you know we're really not talking about the wild west here. Um, we, we're we're talking about um, an existing legal structure that can address some of the issues um, that arise with um, with AI and generative AI in particular. Uh, but there are lots of gaps, and you've identified them. And that's something at the International Association of Privacy Professionals, the Global Summit um, in DC last month. That was something that um, that EU regulators were saying as well. That look, you know, the the AI is not an unregulated field. It's just that there's a, there's a lot of work we have we have yet to do, and it's an important concept. You've mentioned training data a couple of times. There are a couple of questions in the in the Q and A about about this, and one is a, a the, the really in some ways around transparency and the future of thinking about um, training data. Um, and 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 I'll I'll com combine these questions and sort of make my own Frankenstein question, which is um, how should we think about um, the, the question of training data as a transparency issue, as an IP issue, um, and, and as, a, as really a source for, I mean, it's necessary, right? Training data is necessary for this to function, um, but it's also the source for a lot of the harms that we're concerned about. Maybe I'll John first and then others can, can chime in. Yeah, and first of all, Kate, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the need for affirmative need for regulation in this space. Um, and that honestly, that's been my corner for a while. That I, I wish the government or and elected representatives would regulate early and often um, in this space because of the gaps that exist in the existing regulations. For a few of the reasons that you mentioned, um, including you know. Yes, there's a, a general requirement that uh, businesses can't use unfair, deceptive, or fraudulent practices, but there aren't necessarily specific requirements or affirmative obligations that are well identified. Um, yeah, we also don't know what unfair means, frankly. Right? Well, no, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that that's an area where I would really like to see uh, affirmative action and um, uh, something put into black letter law. Um, in terms of training data, um, you know, I, I think you hit two of the, the key issues, Chris, which is IP and um, how can we police that for bias? Um, you know, one of the things that I client, uh, counsel clients a lot on when they're using training data or when they're relying on either data that they've purchased or data that they are acquiring from users um, separately uh, to make sure that the terms of the agreements governing that data allow them to continue to use that to train their applications. Because if they're using they're using any of that data to train applications, but the terms aren't properly stated to permit that or prevent them from using, say, the work product of the data after the license is terminated, that can damage, that can prevent them from using that work product. So uh, to the extent that they're relying on uh, data to train an AI, and then the, the AI is trained, and they've got it going the way they want it, and their right to use the work product gets yanked, they have to retrain that AI. They, they don't necessarily retain the right to do that. In terms of policing the bias in that data, you know, a lot, and this is another area, quite frankly, where I think Kate is right. We could use affirmative obligations and standards stated. The Algorithmic Accountability Acts that have been kicked around, I think that's a good start. I'd like to see substantive standards stated in that. Those acts typically don't have that. But one of the things that I, not necessarily among my clients, fortunately, but I know this is an issue. I mean, the 
the holy grail for AI decision-making, this isn't necessarily generative AI, but speaking broadly, is that the what comes out of the AI will be better than what the human beings that set up the AI would otherwise produce. I, I have heard anecdotally, seen some reports that many of the people using AI don't necessarily want to improve their decision-making. They're perfectly happy with their decision-making. They just want it to take an hour or 10 minutes rather than two weeks or, uh, or, or two months. And if there's bias in their decision making or bias in the uh, the generation of their content, their data from AI, they don't care necessarily. And so that's that's an area where having affirmative requirements and standards that they have to apply to their training data, I think, would be very beneficial. Chris, could Can I, I jump? Just... Could I jump in with a, yeah, a little bit of recent news, which is there's some things that are going on even this month. Um, in Congress and in the Biden administration. Um, uh, Chuck Schumer in the Senate is, is launching a major effort to create legislation about artificial intelligence in, in light of generative artificial intelligence. Ted Liu has a, a resolution. It's, it's so new, it doesn't even have a number yet, but basically saying that uh, the Congress needs to take action about artificial intelligence. And uh, Senator Bennett in Colorado has introduced the Assess AI Act. So I wanted to mention that. Um, the Biden administration on May 4th put out a statement about um, needing to regulate artificial intelligence and it's uh, proposed or is, says it's going to do certain things. One of them I thought was really interesting was policies to ensure the U.S. government is leading by example on mitigating AI risks and harnessing AI opportunities. And the Office of Management and Budget is, is, going, to be released, is going to be releasing draft policy guidance. And the other thing I would mention kind of interesting is... Uh, Massachusetts Senate Bill 31, which is, uh, it, it, it starts off with a statement, it is an act drafted with the help of ChatGPT to regulate generative artificial intelligence models like ChatGPT, and it has some pretty reasonable things to say, and I understand it's not going to go anywhere, but I, but in your state or your commonwealth, it's uh, something interesting going on there. So um, those are some recent developments that people may want to take into account. Yeah, that's really yeah. helpful. And I want to turn back to you uh, about some practical stuff. But Kate, please jump in. I just wanted to say one quick thing, which is that, you know, there's for 10 years now uh, been a lot of consternation in the United States, particularly in the, you know, so-called national security community, but generally about the arms race in artificial intelligence between the United States and China. And as someone who's worked on a lot of surveillance policy, I've heard a lot from you know various people in the, in the U.S. that we need to be aware of you know the the danger that we you know hamstring United States military intelligence whatever given that you know China is um, rushing forward with artificial intelligence and you know has no intent intention to put any kinds of restraints on the use of the technology there. Well. It turns out that is not true. Um, and the Chinese government is in fact imposing extremely draconian regulations on uh, gener generative artificial intelligence. So I just wanted to put that out there. You know, obviously we in the US have the first amendment. We believe that um, freedom of speech is, is a core value in, in, in the US at the ACLU, certainly we do as well. Um, but I just wanted to put the Chinese government's response to generative AI in this conversation because they are affirmatively saying that the what they view, what the Chinese Communist Party views as the public interest is um, 
takes prominence over, you know, the, the private uh, commercial interest of artificial intelligence companies in China. And I just find that to be a really interesting fact, given, you know, where we are in the conversation about regulation in the United States. That's a that's a really helpful uh, contrast. I, I'm I'm regretting that we only have an hour, and really now we only have 19 minutes left in Slovenia because I think any one of these threads could could generate quite a bit of discussion. We'll coordinate a follow up seminar. <laughs> uh, but thank you for that. Let me let me let me let me ask a, a few practical questions to all of you. Uh, given that you know we we've talked about what generative AI is, we've talked about what the regulatory landscape looks like and how it's evolving. Um, and now, you know, given all of that, um, how should we think about the the guardrails that do exist? So, so Steve, I'll ask you. You know, when we're thinking about um, uh, generative AI that reproduces an individual's voice or an individual's image, um, and you were talking about some of that as as some of the apps that that you were talking about can do that. Um, what what are the guardrails? What are the controls? Uh, uh, around those that that uh, we should be mindful of? There are two sides to the coin, Chris. One is the behavior of enterprises that are creating the systems or using the systems and having a set of internal controls is important. Um, when you're thinking about developing something like this or deploying something like this, uh, you should have uh, a process by which a, a service or product is made generally available to the public. And as part of that, uh, you, you should ask questions as, as let's say you're in-house counsel at a company like that, asking questions about where did we get this data from and what, what procedures or policies do we follow regarding when we capture individual voice and image data? Uh, should we be using this at all? Should we be collecting this at all? You know, asking those kinds of questions, I think, um, and having a set of robust internal controls. Like when I was at uh, VeriSign Incorporated, which is, you know, when I was at, near the Alewife Tea Stop and then later on in Wakefield, um, we used to have these meetings about making products generally available. And we would ask these kinds of tough questions and, and, and try to guide the, the, the business people and the technologists on, on how to roll out um, the, the, the products so that uh, we didn't get in, ourselves into legal trouble. And we had meetings like every week and we would say, okay, what are the new developments? And then I would chime in on some things that might be of concern to me. And by having these internal controls, it mitigated the risks that risks that we would might have of violating somebody's privacy rights. Um, the flip side, the other side of the coin is, you know, there are controls that users can assert, i.e. claims or rights that they might be able to assert to control uh, voice and image. Uh, so for example, a user might object to the use of that that user's voice and image and there might be rights under company's privacy policy where the person can ask for the deletion of that person's personal data um, so you, by exercising these rights users can exercise control over voice and image and then there are ip claims uh, against um, generative artificial intelligence companies i would just uh, uh, recommend to you anderson versus stability ai limited in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, number 23 uh, CV00201, 23201. So um, there, there's a claim that uh, uh, these uh, various generative AI companies have taken copyrighted images and ingested them in order to produce new images. So individuals, if you know, if somebody has a video or, or voice out there, could make an IP claim against companies like that. And then there are these rights to publicity, like uh, name and likeness. If if the, if those are ingested into the system and get spit out, you know there could be right to publicity claims. 
that's that's very helpful. And one of the things that I hear sort of running through as a theme in this conversation um, is this idea of, of minimization, right? Minimizing what kind of data is being provided by the user, minimizing what kind of data is being collected uh, and retained um, by 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 these apps. Um, John, let me ask you. Um, let's say one of these applications gets something wrong about an individual, right? That makes an incorrect statement, hallucinates, as we've been talking about. Uh, Katie's another more colorful term, um, uh, which I which I will use now going forward. Um, what? How? How? Who's accountable for that? What? What? What happens when something like that occurs? I mean, that's really an open question right now. There have been numerous instances of Chat GPT wrongly identifying real individuals of pretty serious charges. Uh, a mayor in Australia was accused of, uh, identified by ChatGPT as being guilty of corporate bribery. A uh, cartoonist in New York was identified by ChatGPT as a plagiarist. Uh, and a law professor was identified as having been accused of sexual misconduct with a student. All of these were demonstrably not true. Um, now, exactly how ChatGPT came to identify them, you know, how the, the algorithmic analysis behind ChatGPT operated to produce that incorrect information is an open question. Um, and I, I think that OpenAI, Google, other companies that are relying on the reliability of natural language generative AI applications sort of have a quandary. You know, they do typically state in their terms of use, we are not always accurate. You cannot rely on this 100%. There are instances where there's a, um, a hallucination. Um, but at the same time, they want these to be reliable in the same sense that a, a utility, basically, in the same way that many people now rely on search engines on the internet. And so there's a there's a conflict between giving that warning and trying to uh, remove themselves from any liability for those types of uh, defamatory statements, and also being a utility that's reliable to enough people that it becomes adopted that way. And so I, I think that's an open question right now. And what the reasonable person standard around that becomes is an open question. It really depends on how reliable they are, they, they become going forward, and how much people start to rely on them, regardless of whether they are objectively reliable. Well, let me pick up on, on one of the one of the concepts that you introduced around this idea of warnings. And Kate, let me ask you, is is that a useful concept? The the idea of providing warnings to users and and if so, what do you what do you think that that should look like? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem all that helpful in terms of stopping the spread of mis and disinformation. You know, Twitter's tried it. Um, it didn't, <laughs> I, I don't think it's like, it's reduced the amount of, you know, QAnon conspiracy nonsense on, on Twitter. Um, I just wanted to say something else though, briefly, which is that it strikes me that these companies are in a tough spot um, where, you know, they're facing Section 230, uh, you know, pr pr probably not applying to them because they are generating content as opposed to simply providing a forum for internet users to make their own commentary the way that, you know, um, search engines simply point people in the direction of, uh, you know, a resource that's hosted on someone else's website or social media companies allow users to post their own content, they are in the name itself generating this content themselves, which I think they elected to do, they elected to call themselves generators because of their concerns about copyright law, right? And the intellectual property law. So 
they're kind of in, in a tough spot where, you know, they'd like Section 230 protection, obviously, but their decision to identify themselves as generators of content due to IP law um, probably will result in, you know, Section 230 um, not applying to them. You know, my assumption is that the courts will say that they do not get Section 230 protection. So, um, yeah, I think they're in a really tricky spot in terms of, you know, the liability that they're going to face. And as John said, there's already litigation on this. You know, folks are already suing OpenAI because they've been, you know, um, accused of being, you know, rapists or whatever when when that's not true. And, um, I, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about in this conversation yet, but I think is at least for me, one of the top two concerns about the impact that these technologies are going to have on our society generally is um, the the explosion of misinformation, disinformation, and scams that these technologies unleash onto our society and and our democracy as well. So you know, if we thought that the the presidential election in twenty sixteen or twenty twenty um, was uh, mired in, you know, really dirty politics and tons of mudslinging and, and, um, and lies, frankly, about, about, you know, what happened prior to the election and after the election, I think we're going to be really in for it in 2024. And I don't think anybody's really prepared, um, for what that's going to look like. So obviously there are a lot of challenges in the United States, particularly because of the first amendment about what the government can do to step in um, to prohibit the spread uh, or the generation of misinformation and disinformation online. Um, but to me, that is actually the number one challenge. I think that probably the number two challenge relates to employment and you know, the, the fact that I just wanna say, I think it's really interesting that um, generative artificial intelligence has existed for some years now Technologies like facial recognition obviously have been in use by governments and corporations for decades at this point. Um, it is only when uh, generative AI products that are available to the public that threaten the livelihoods of white collar workers does the press just focus on this issue like it's the most important thing facing, facing humanity. So I think it, you know, those are to me some of the core issues and I don't know how the law is going to be able to address them in the US. Uh, but I think that, you know, misinformation and disinformation and uh, and scams really like, you know, that is not a civil liberties issue necessarily, but it is a deeply frightening one for our society where, you know, increasingly the the um, the number of scams and and I think more dangerously, the um, the sophistication of those scams, you know, Steve, you were saying before that not only are we talking about generating text or images, we're talking about generating voice material, right? So, you know, you get a phone call and it sounds like your mother saying, honey, I need you to wire me, you know, a couple hundred bucks, like I'm in a tough spot. These are going to be things that I don't, I don't know that anybody's really prepared to grapple with. And, and, Chat, you know, I'd love to hear Steve's reaction to that. ChatGPT is helping uh, ha hackers in foreign countries who don't know English very well to create better phishing emails. That's, that's yeah. And that's just, a, yeah, that's just scratching the surface scratching of what this surface. stuff can do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and actually that's, that's the thing. And, and Steve, I have, I have one question for you, but um, you know, when you talk about misinformation, Ken, I mean, we're talking about, we're not just talking about um, a, a, a well-written hallucinatory uh, Facebook post. We're talking about uh, uh, appropriating somebody's image and voice 
uh, so that they say something that they never said that could be deeply damaging in an election. Chris, just this week, there was a, uh, probably many people saw this before anybody could, you know, what's the, the cliche, the, a lie makes its way around the world before the truth can get its pants on, right? And that's what we saw this week when somebody generated a very unconvincing, by the way, image of uh, an explosion that occurred outside the Pentagon. The building looked nothing like the Pentagon. And nonetheless, this was retweeted a million times and all over people's Twitter feeds within, you know, an hour. Um, and of course it was bullshit. <laughs> it was not true, but, you know, so imagine something like that happening the night before an election, you know, election day, the morning of, you know, just, you know, the, the, the potential is really actually deeply frightening, I think. Well, go Chris, one of the other, Chris, one of the other things that uh, is sort of on the frontier of this is my concern, not today, but as time goes on, is about uh, manipulation and addiction. Uh, people will become addicted to interacting with AI systems in the future. And there's actually lawsuits right now pending in the Northern District of California about social media companies using algorithms to make their social media services more addicted, addictive. I can see the same thing coming with generative artificial intelligence systems. So uh, touching on both of those, you know, I've, I've heard it said that social media and the, the tools that companies have used around that will be considered the cigarettes of the early 21st century, 50, 70 years from now. Um, Kate touched on something, uh, I think halfway through the presentation and sort of come back to it, but the, the First Amendment issues here, you know, traditionally, the type of um, speech and presentation content that um that we've been discussing in terms of generative ai would all fall under the first amendment and for a while i think i would have I, I know i would have argued that as well as time has gone on and the concerns that kate has expressed um and that other people have expressed about the the impact that could have on consumers on elections on you know the the actual quality and content of her discourse i really start to draw a distinction between what is actual protected speech and what is content ricochet the you know the the things that are produced by generative ai applications that don't actually have any speech merit to them they're really designed to flood the playing field and make it harder to pick out what is actual content or what is actual speech that has some meaning behind it and i, I think that that is going to continue to be an issue and the way that gets distinguished under the first amendment as speech and not speech, uh, I, I think will be really interesting and also a, a difficult distinction to make as time goes on. That, that's this, again, I'm looking at the time and wishing we had more of it. Let me let me um, let me ask Steve, one thing we haven't touched on as well is lawyers ethical obligations and uh, and maybe that's a good place where we can sort of wrap this up. Um, how should lawyers be thinking about, uh, generative AI, you know, e either in their use of it as lawyers or when they're thinking about advising clients? Sure. Um, there, uh, there are three areas in the ethical rules that I think we should be concerned about. One is competence. Um, a generative artificial intelligence is a tool that we can use as lawyers, but uh, right now it's not really competent <laughs> to write entire briefs and things like that. You might be able to Brief yourself on some area of the law. You might be able to do a little bit of research, 
But as far as writing an effective brief is concerned, let's say a motion for summary judgment and supporting memorandum, I mean, you're going to have to do that yourself. Uh, you can't rely on generative artificial intelligence. And if you do, then you probably fall afoul of the, the rules against, or the, you would fall afoul against the rules requiring competent legal practice. The second is confidentiality. Like you don't want to put your client's confidential information into a, a generative AI prompt uh, because then it's being shared with a third party. Um, so we have to protect our clients' confidences. Um, the third part is delegation, which is a little bit of an extension of the first, um, which is that you can delegate to lawyer. The traditional rules are about delegating to paralegals and secretaries and, and other folks who are support staff. But I would argue that the same rules apply to delegating to artificial intelligence. You, As lawyer, you're the one in charge of your work product. You can't delegate it entirely to an artificial intelligence, just like you can't delegated entirely to non-legal professionals. So turning it over to John, do you want to talk about uh, court systems and unauthorized practice of law? Yeah, uh, briefly. There was a publicity stunt by a company, I think it's called uh, Do Not Pay, which has, uh, they're sort of like legal Zoom, but they have forms, et cetera, that help pro se litigants uh, object to parking tickets, speeding tickets, things like that. As a publicity stunt, they were going to have a uh, pro se litigant challenging a parking ticket or speeding ticket in court with a uh, an earpiece providing real-time advice on what to say to the judge, what to say to opposing counsel. Uh, and uh, the, the stunt would have gone forward, except the founder of the startup received a number of letters alleging that he was going to do jail time if the stunt went through. Uh, and I, I think that it speaks to both the, the desire among a certain demographic of consumers to have low-cost uh, AI legal assistance, um, but also, you know, what uh, what courts and bar associations should pay attention to what rules they want around that, what's prohibited, what's going to be authorized, and how that's going to be regulated. One thing in particular consume, that consumers should be aware of is the companies offering those services aren't necessarily in the business of providing legal assistance. They could be in the business of acquiring data, and they're using legal assistance that they offer as a, a loss leader to acquire that data from you, which means that the quality of a representation might not be that great. All right, we have about a minute and a half left. And so I'm going to give each of you 30 seconds, no more, on um, final takeaways, whatever you want, um, either something practical that people can be thinking about or um, you know what's on the horizon or um, issues of policy else. John, I'll start with you since- Good, I was, I was gonna volunteer because I think I've got my 30 seconds down. Um, the way I think of it is that uh, many, People right now are overstating what generative AI will do in the next two years and underestimating what it will be able to do in the next 10. Um, I think the subsequent generations of generative AI, both in terms of natural language production, deep fakes, images, uh, is going to be pretty remarkable. And it's hard for us to totally imagine what that's going to be like now. Steve? Yeah, I have three points to make. One is watch the regulations and, and legislation coming out because it's fast moving. Second, I do want to emphasize when you're talking to your clients, make sure that they have internal controls along the lines of what I talked about. And third is I'm very interested because I do a lot of these technology transactions in what you can do in the procurement side, or if you're representing a vendor, you're trying to sell. Think about as a, as a customer doing due diligence on these systems and then having representations and warranties about maybe where they got the data and uh, figuring out uh, ways of getting indemnification if they fall short. And Katie, you get the last word. I'll just say that um, 
don't forget that you were once a young lawyer and uh, don't outsource all of your, you know, draft briefing to chat GPT, because if you do, then there will be no old lawyers in 30 years <laughs> and the profession will die. <laughs> That's, 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 those are ominous and I think uh, also uh, good, good advice. So thank you all. Um, I know there were some questions in the chat we didn't get to, so feel free to reach out to any one of us, but um, this has been great for me. I've learned a lot from the three of you. Really appreciate it. And thanks to our attendees as well. All right. Take care, everybody. Thanks, everybody.